This week's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Simply Save. Take advantage of Simply Save's holiday deals and get 40% off your new home security system by visiting simplysave.com/mrcreeps. Hello everyone. As many of you know, Christmas is right around the corner. And just because Halloween is long gone, doesn't mean that we still can't be a little spooky. Let us get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I was paid to analyze an audio file from a tape recorder. I discovered something weird. Written by Alex D. Reed. Transcription number 457, Beat Up Recorder, Transcriber's Notes. Hey, so I don't know whose account this is, but if you want me to post what I found, I don't give a crap. Some guy in a suit paid me to analyze these sound waves on some beat up recorder. Turns out the waveforms are roughly correlated to binary and therefore into language. A week later, I translated the whole thing. Really weird. Grammar's mine. The guy in the suit never showed up with my money. So yeah, I'll just post it here. Maybe others can get something from it. Transcription begins. We heard him from the moment he stepped out of his door and into his truck. From the confines of his rundown home. He thought modernity could cast us out, but outside his tools were fewer. The man's son feared the dark. No matter the time of day, the man's house was lit up like a firework display, each room beaming out at us with a fiery grin. Other houses would succumb and find us eventually, but not the man's house. The man worked nights and left his son swamped in the rays. The greatest pleasure is in the conquering of the greatest prey. We had followed the man as he drove around the city for years now. He would set out after midnight and search for a cell tower in need of repair. Throughout the night, he would climb the tower with a headlamp atop his head, make the necessary repairs under the soft glow of safety lights and then descend the terrible gaze of his truck's headlights. There was a tremendous sense of guilt in the man for leaving his son at home by himself. He brought a tape recorder with him, and chatted into it to make objects of comfort for his son. Usually, it was inane. Truly, it was a diary of sorts, one that his son could play at night if he ever missed his father. Perhaps we wondered... The man salves his guilt by keeping the lights on and by recording the tapes. It is more for his benefit than his son's. After all, the man only leaves the lights on in his son's room and lets the rest of his home succumb. But night after night, we watched a house without a single darkened room. There is no reason he should talk into the tapes, yet that never stops him. As the nights grew darker, our desperation to snatch a greater prey grew greater than our instinct to hide. We were never sure whether it was the son of the father that we desired most, 
but perhaps it was neither, but what their bond represented. They had won their clocks back in the dusk, stole hours of the day from them. Soon, the lights in the house flickered on in the late afternoon instead of the evening. The boy came back from school and refused to leave the house. Even when the burning brightness of the streetlights smothered the tarmac road in sickly amber, the boy was wise enough to know that the lights were merely a bandage on a terminal wound. As the solstice approached, the man was taking more jobs. We heard him explain to his son that the best time to do his work was when everyone else was asleep. The son was never persuaded, and the father was never persuaded to stay. On a cold night, the man stepped out of his glowing home and into his truck with his tools. He must have found another job to do. We followed as he extricated himself from the city, down the Ardeal highways, and into a smaller set of capillary roads until he arrived at a small town upon a verdant hill, a single cell tower towering over the low homes. Our hands reached out to him, eager to conquer what we knew we could, but our mind told us to hold. It was much quieter than the city which meant our meals might be best prepared, but it was always better to be prudent when hungry. The man parked his truck beside the singular cell tower, attached his tools to his belt, hooked himself up to the tower with a series of harnesses and robes, slung the tape recorder around his neck, hit the record button and began climbing. He talked of the tower being a routine checkup, an easy and quick job if anything. He talked to his son through the recorder like he was there with him. His delivery was convincing. Often we would check the glowing home and confirm that his son was still in bed, bathed in light, and not climbing alongside the man. The man apologized for snapping at his son for getting a question wrong on the math homework. Then the man talked about when they might go see mom again. The man climbed up the tower carefully, making new anchor points on these steel so that if he were to fall, he should be safe. By the time that he was halfway up the light, it looked rather weak from the base where we watched. Invariably, his conversation would turn to the issue of his son's fear of the dark. He would attempt to persuade his son that there was nothing to fear in every way he could. Often, he would come back to showing how what he was doing proved there was nothing to fear in the dark, that even in the dark he could help people. When he looked down from the top of the tower, the sea of dark beneath could be scary, but he knew that every time he descended to the bottom again, it would just be the ground that he had remembered from before. It was the arrogance that our hands hated the most. Our mind whispered comforts to our belly, and our feet dragged us closer. He reached the top of the tower, pried open the control box, and began tinkering with the electrics. Nearby, the hum of the pulses that rippled through us from every home and phone died for a brief few seconds. This was a man who had the power to silence the world, but reactivated moments later. The anger took hold of the hands. Our minds shouted no, but our hands reached out faster than we could think them back. 
We commanded our legs to dig into the earth, but they too rebelled, gliding to the base of the tower and eviscerating the anchor ropes the man would use to get back down. Let him fear the dark. And then our mind was swayed too. Such pleasure in watching the man talk to his son through his recorder, never knowing what was to come. There was a sweet pleasure in knowing how his promises of taking his son out for a pizza the next day would come to naught. His words dripped out of his mouth and into our belly. He finished his work and the ripples reappeared from the scattered homes nearby. It was only by that time that our eyes turned to re-examine the town that we saw the absence of people. Beds were empty, cars left running, a baby monitor set to watch an absent crib. A fire needed tempering in the hearth, and soon a home that had stood for centuries would burn bright. This of course had happened before when our limbs had whispered temptation to our mind, before our eyes or mouth could see our mouth had already consumed, and our belly rumbled for more. The man tested the tautness of his rope and felt it pull freely. His face barely moved, but he started hauling his anchor rope up with widening eyes. Strange how surprised he seemed when the bottom was ripped apart like it was put through a shredder. We were the prey's companion all their lives. Yet still, they're confused when we make ourselves known. Now the years had turned in his own head. His legs wobbled so he sat down, seeking to reassert control of himself. These old towers weren't designed with practicality in mind, but they could still be climbed down without a set of ropes. It just wouldn't be safe. He had stopped the recording and then resumed it. He spoke of inane things, as if something hadn't went wrong. Even when temporally displaced, the man felt he still had to soothe his son. Even when he examined the end of the rope, he talked about visiting mom at the weekend. Even when he looked into the surrounding town and spotted the car in the middle of an intersection abandoned, and windows splattered with blood, he talked about what they would have for dinner the next night. He stopped the recording again and looked out, eyes betraying little. Finally, he clenched his fists and peered down from his stoop. We looked back up at him, but he saw nothing. Outside of the beams of the truck's headlights, the world seemed darker than it had ever been. He searched for any life in the dark, but he couldn't find it. He reached into his bag and pulled out an energy bar holding it between his finger and thumb, peering down in the dark, trying to decide how much of the unreal he wished to believe. Finally, fear went out and he dropped the energy bar into the dark. He never heard it impact the ground. He bit his lip and felt shivers on the back of his neck, drowning in the pulsating crimson glow of the tower's light. He tried to point his flashlight down at us, but it was too far away to have any effect. He moved for his phone and made a call to the police. He wanted to explain what was actually happening, but opted instead to say he got stuck and saw someone trying to steal his car. They said that they would send someone out there shortly, but in the meantime, 
The man sat down and stared into the darkness, gently holding the recorder in his hand like it would somehow save him. The police did arrive. He saw them on the horizon driving into town with flashing blue lights. To get into town, they needed to use a road that passed through a dark wood that blocked the man's eyeline, but he could still see the blue lights flashing against the firs. The blue lights fought us off for a time, but we flooded the car faster than they could expel us. Our hands had seceded from our mind and ripped the flesh from the bone, the steel from rubber. The man watched the blue lights die halfway through the road. He deflated, but he kept his cool. He looked back down at us with a new understanding of his situation. He was food. He glanced at the crisscrossing steel beams that marked the path to the ground, to his truck and to us. He bit his lip, considered the path, and then took a slow breath before sitting beside the control panel. Many wouldn't have approached the situation with the same calm, but the man took the eventuality in his stride. He took out his recorder and talked to his son about the phobia of the dark. The man had spent the past ten years fighting the dark with his son. In a way, he was better prepared than most to face it down. He told his son that there was no shame in keeping the lights on as long as you could face your fear from a place of safety. One day, confronting fear will happen. It was inevitable, but there was no reason that day had to be today. The man said that he would face the dark for his son. And to his credit, he did. For hours, he sat at the top of the tower while we prattled on the bottom, trying to beckon him down with dreams of oblivion. He stared at us, waiting for the morning sun to rise. The towns and police had satiated our hands and belly for a time, but we soon grew hungry again. There was more meat in them, but our hands knew that defeating the man would satiate us for years. There's a greater pleasure in killing someone defiant than someone ignorant. Our mind found a newfound respect for the prey. We permitted him a swift end. Before we knew it, our teeth were wrapped around the steel beams at the bottom of the tower. We gnawed through the steel, each bite reverberating up to the man above. After a few minutes, we had bitten through one of the support beams. The tower groaned as its weight lurched to the side, and we looked up at the man who clutched onto his recorder, still staring, still thinking. His defiance only motivated us further. Soon our minds succumbed to the hunger too and the hands were directed to the most essential support beams. Within minutes, the tower screeched and groaned as it verged on collapse. Wires snapped and sparked as they grew taut and blasted apart. The man held on to a steel beam for grim death. Our claws and hands eviscerated the final support beam and the tower screamed a death cry as it leant towards the town. The man was ready. In a final moment of will, the man gripped the recorder and threw it as hard as he could towards his truck. As the truck fell, 
the recorder arced across the starry sky, landing in the harsh headlight beams of the truck. The tower crashed into a house, and we tore the man limb from limb, drunk on the blood, and as the morning sun rose, we... Transcriber's notes. And it ends there. After a bit of googling, I found a news story from the early 2000s that lines up with this story. I'll probably keep the lights on tonight. I would like to take a minute to talk about this week's Creepscast sponsor, Simply Safe. If you have ever wanted to make your home feel safer, there is no better time than now. This week, our friends at Simply Safe are giving Creepscast listeners early access to all of their holiday deals, 40% off their award-winning home security. I love Simply Safe because it has everything you need to make your home safe indoor and outdoor cameras, comprehensive sensors, all monitored around the clock by trained professionals who send help the instant that you need it. My favorite thing about Simply Safe is the peace of mind it has afforded me. Being a horror narrator, it's inevitable that sometimes I'll read an extra spicy story that even gets my jimmies a little rustled. Well, thankfully, my Simply Safe security system puts my mind at ease knowing that my entire property is totally covered, safe, and secure. Know that if you get a Simply Safe system, you're getting the best. Simply Safe was even named Best Home Security System of 2021 by US News and World Report. These guys are legit. Take advantage of Simply Safe's holiday deals and get 40% off your new home security system by visiting simplysafe.com slash mrcreeves. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash mrcreeves for 40% off your entire system. The pub that I work at is haunted. What's lurking in the basement is pure horror. Written by Call Me Star. My first month on the job went without incident. I was hired as head chef, seeing how Ray, the previous chef, had quit unexpectedly. The pub, which was originally built in the late 1700s, then rebuilt in 1823, is located in downtown Ancaster, a quiet village in southern Ontario. The pub seats roughly around 60 people, and boasts live music four nights a week. It's a cozy room and the food is fantastic, if I do say so myself. Sometime last week, as I was delivering a tray of steaming hot glasses to the bar, I saw my first ghost. It was a Sunday, I remember. The pub was dead. Only one table remained, and the patrons were finishing their drinks and discussing how they would split up the bill. Sitting alone at the end of the bar was a woman, who may have been in her early 40s. She was well-dressed and well-postured, and wore a large, broad-brimmed hat and a thin, gauzy white dress. There was a sadness surrounding her, but I was busy working, so I paid her little notice. All I wanted was for this shift to end, 
and pronto, so I could enjoy a cold, refreshing pint. Brenna, the bartender that evening, hurried past me, all the while ignoring the woman sitting at the bar who was without a drink. Um, I think that woman needs a drink, I said to Brenna, or her bill. I regretted these words as soon as I had spoken them. Never tell a bartender how to do their job, right? That said, I couldn't figure out why Brenna, who's a wonderful barkeep, would allow a customer to sit unserved for so long. Brenna glanced toward the bar where the woman was seated and frowned. There's no one sitting at the bar, she said, sounding very much annoyed. I thought that she was teasing me, since I'm the new guy and all, but when I checked, the woman sitting at the bar was gone. I was stunned. I wanted to say something clever, but for the first time in my life, I was at a loss for words. Instead, I made a joking gesture, like I was kidding with her, and then I scampered back to the kitchen to finish my work. When the kitchen was closed and my work completed, I bounced back to the bar, anxiously awaiting my after-work pint. I sat tepidly at the bar, drinking my beer, my mind racing. I couldn't stop thinking about that woman wearing that hat. Was she a hallucination? Probably she was. I chose to sit at the opposite end of the bar, just in case. That said, it is a modest-sized bar, so I was still within spitting distance of where the woman was sitting. I finished my beer and soon forgot about the mysterious woman, and I was ready for home. As I was putting on my coat and scarf, bracing for the icy weather waiting for me outside, I spotted the woman from the corner of my eye. Gotcha, I snapped, looking across the bar to where she was sitting. Only when I checked, she had vanished. I rubbed my eyes and shook my head. I must be losing it, I thought to myself, unhappily. Maybe it was stress. Warily, I left for home. I couldn't get the woman sitting at the bar out of my head. Was she real or was my mind playing tricks on me? Maybe this was all some elaborate prank the other staff members were playing on me. It could be, but that was highly unlikely. Maybe I really was losing it. I mean, with all the restrictions and distractions concerning the restaurant industry these days, I would be right to lose my marbles. When I returned to work a couple of nights later, I felt better. It was trivia night, which meant that the pub would be packed, and it was. Work was beyond strenuous. The kitchen, which was hot enough to scald a loon, looked more like a war zone than a place to prepare food. Sometime after 8 o'clock, when it had died down a bit... I took my dinner break. I sat at the edge of the bar and ate my burger in silence. I was famished. As I was dipping my french fries into a giant glob of ketchup, lost in my thoughts, I spotted the woman sitting at the bar. Beside her was a group of large men, who were drinking and roaring and having a good time. This woman, on the other hand, remained eerily quiet. It was like she wanted to go unnoticed. As Brenna whizzed past me, I motioned to the woman sitting at the bar, and Brenna shot me a stern look. What now? She snapped. 
It was obvious she didn't like me. Maybe because I was filthy and I smelled like fish bait. You're pointing to the only spot that no one's sitting in. You do know this, right? Huh? When I peeked past the men drinking at the bar, the mysterious woman was gone. I gasped. Brenna, on the other hand, muttered some choice words under her breath and then sauntered off to serve some drinks. I was too frightened to even so much as glance across the bar to where, up until a moment ago, the woman wearing the hat was seated. But if she wasn't really sitting there, then how come her bar stool remained vacant? This was peculiar, because the pub was jam-packed. Every table and chair were filled except for hers. It was as if some unknown force was preventing people from sitting there. This made zero sense. I was coming unhinged. Nothing made sense to me at that moment. As I was heading back to the kitchen, I felt a pair of eyes following me. I knew who it was. It was the woman sitting at the bar. When I glanced over my shoulder, sure enough, she was back sitting at the bar. When I took a step toward her, however, she had disappeared again. Poof, just like that, and she was gone. I resisted the urge to scream. Instead, I scooted back to the kitchen, where I belonged. As impassively as possible, I asked Dave, the lion cook who was working with me that night, about the haunted history of the pub. I had heard rumors of such, but chalked them up to folklore. But Dave ignored me instead, and he put five pounds of chicken wings into the deep fryer, and then pulled out a tray of nachos from the oven. I asked him again. Dave remained silent for an uncomfortable length of time. Eventually, he looked up from the plate of nachos that he was dressing, and he scrutinized me. Are you serious? he asked. Or are you just being a jerk? This wasn't the response that I was expecting. When I mentioned the woman sitting at the bar, his eyes lit up. You've seen her? he asked. He was unable to contain his excitement. Wow, that's cool. I've only heard of her. We went back to work. Dave pulled the wings from the deep fryer, shook off the grease, and applied the appropriate sauces, and then plated them. I rang the bell, and the server quickly came to retrieve them. The subject of the woman sitting at the bar didn't come up again until it was sometime after work. Sitting at the table closest to the bar, I bought Dave an after-work pint, to which he guzzled down with glee. Afterward, I ordered us another round, and I wanted to loosen his lips a little. Yeah, she was sitting right there. I pointed to the stool at the end of the bar, next to the warmly decorated fireplace, with the rose-colored stockings hanging from the mantle. Dave peeked over my shoulder. He smiled nervously, and then leaned in close to me and whispered, Have you ever been in the basement? I shook my head. The basement was where we store kegs and random cleaning supplies, but mostly it's where junk goes to die. Soon, the next round of drinks arrived and we cheered. Dave took a generous gulp, wiped his mouth on the sleeve of his Metallica shirt, and then looked me dead in the eyes. The pub is definitely haunted, he said just above a whisper. 
It has been for as long as anyone can remember. Personally, I haven't seen any ghosts, but Ray had told me some stories. Creepy stories which include this lady you're describing. Ray hated this place, especially the basement. Probably why he quit. Dave paused to drink. Do you know the history of this pub? This town, in fact. I didn't. The town of Ancaster is old. Well, old for this part of the world. Across the street is where they kept the gallows. That's where they would try war criminals, traitors, and your run-of-the-mill ruffians. They did a lot of men during the War of 1812, and they were ruthless about it too. Did you know that the bloodiest sentence ever handed down to this day happened here? They convicted 15 men, all of whom were charged for treason. And it gets better. These same prisoners resided right here in this very building, waiting for those nasty nooses to snap their necks like twigs. The most dangerous men were detained in the basement, where they were taken care of and tormented and God knows what else. I've been down there and it's creepy as heck. The floor is gray dirt and the walls are dark and dingy. Plus it smells all musty and old. I hate going down there. Dave's words had filled me with dread. More beer was required, I realized, so I ordered us another round. We sat in silence, waiting for the beer to arrive. I was trying to wrap my mind around what Dave had just told me. I honestly knew nothing about this town's twisted past. It was around this time that I spotted the woman sitting at the end of the bar. Only now she was facing me. My stomach filled with butterflies. Fear was creeping into my body like an unwanted guest. The beer arrived. We drank and then Dave continued where he had left off. And I did my best to ignore the apparition staring at me. There must be a record somewhere that shows the total number of prisoners executed here. Dave said in between the sips of beer. Whatever it is, I'm sure it's a heck of a lot. Maybe that's why this place is haunted. I pondered all of this for a moment. Up until a few days ago, the idea of ghosts being real seemed ludicrous. I've made fun of people for believing such hogwash, but now look at me. I'm discussing the ghosts of dead prisoners while being surveyed by a woman sitting at the bar that apparently only I can see. I stole another glance over my shoulder. The woman was indeed watching me. Dave looked at me curiously. She's back, isn't she? He asked. I nodded. It took all my energy not to completely freak out. All this was new to me. Dave turned to face the empty bar stool where the ghost woman was sitting and stared for an incredible length of time. He was squinting. Dang it, I see nothing, he said. But I do feel something strange coming over me. Probably my imagination. Dave finished his last swallow of ale, and then he started gathering his things. His face was pale. His eyes seemed far away. He thanked me for the beer, said goodbye to Brenna, and then left. He quit the next day. By now, I had a decent beer buzz, which under normal circumstances would have been great. But not on this particular evening. I was downright spooked. 
I could still feel the ghost woman scrutinizing me with her dour, dead eyes, which added to the misery. I needed to split and fast before I lost my mind altogether. I began organizing my belongings, doing my best to ignore the ashen lady staring at me from her seat at the bar. As I was about to leave the pub, Brenna came rushing over. Hey Tony, can you please go down to the basement and bring me up a keg of Coors? She seemed flustered. She had been waiting on a large table, who seemed hell-bent on partying all night. Suddenly, I found myself trembling like an earthquake. My hands were cold and clammy, my legs as sturdy as a unicycle. The last thing I wanted to do was venture down to the basement, not after what Dave had just told me, but I did it anyway. I mean, what choice did I have? The stairwell leading down to the basement was a close fitting. I'm pretty tall, so I had to crouch to avoid knocking my head clean off. I descended slowly and cautiously down the wobbly wooden stairs, trying my best to be brave. It wasn't working. I was scared. The basement was poorly lit. The air was thick and gross, and I could smell mold plus something else that I can't really describe. If haunted had an odor, well, this would be it. A discarded Budweiser sign lay in twisted ruins at the bottom of the stairs. Stacks of cardboard boxes lined these stone brick walls which were the color of dead fish. As I reached the bottom step, I tripped over a dead rat, causing me to whack my head on the edge of the ceiling. Man, that hurt. I kicked the rat across the room and rubbed my aching head. At the opposite end of the basement, soiled and silvery spiderwebs, was a mop bucket. It was filthy. Next to it was a rusted old meat slicer that looked to be about 40 years old, at least. Straight ahead of me, leaning haphazardly against the wall, were the kegs. I found the keg labeled Cora's Light. I bent down and carefully picked it up, trying not to whack my head on the lower ceiling again. As I was standing at the base of the stairs, ready to return to the main floor, I felt a cool breeze brush against my face. Then the basement lights started flickering on and off in sudden flashes. I heard sobbing. The sound was close. Someone was down here with me. My anxiety level was skyrocketing. And then came a strange, garbly noise which scared me stupid. I dropped the keg on my big toe, crushing it. The keg clacked and clanked and crawled along the grimy basement floor before coming to an abrupt halt. After dropping an inflammatory F-bomb, I scanned the vicinity, searching for whoever was down here with me. And that's when I felt something touch the back of my neck. I spun around in surprise. No one was there. By now, my heart was threatening to explode from my chest. And even though the temperature in the basement was frigid, I was sweating buckets. Fear had stolen over me. The walls were closing in. I was becoming claustrophobic. I was scared out of my mind. I took a deep breath and held it for six seconds, trying to regain some composure. Then, I let out a nervous laugh, and I started to ascend the stairs. That's when I heard a voice cry out for help. This put a jump to my step. 
I was halfway up the stairs before I realized that I had forgotten the keg. I scampered back down, trying to ignore the terror growing inside of me, and I fetched the dang keg. That's when I heard the voice again. This time, I stopped to have a listen. I knew this was a bad idea, but I did it anyway. I couldn't help myself. Someone was sobbing. The sound was coming from behind the stairwell. I turned my attention to the spandrel behind the stairwell and saw the most extraordinary sight. I gazed, mouth ajar, petrified. What I saw has forever altered my perception of reality. I'm still trying to come to grips with it. Maybe that's what's compelling me to share this story, to make it official, so to speak. As I crept toward the stairwell, I noticed a group of gaunt-looking men huddled together, hiding in the cubbyhole behind the stairs. They were chained to the wall, clad in wretched rags, which matched their filthy, malnourished faces. I knew they weren't real because they were shimmering like a mirage in the desert, yet there they were right in front of me. The sight of these men broke my heart. I don't care what these men did, but this was simply inhumane. I squinted, hoping to get a better look at them. The men were neck to neck, grunting and groaning. One man was weeping profusely, his head buried in his hands. And then I heard bullwhips cracking, followed by a chorus of screams. I let out a pathetic whimper, and when I did, the men dissolved into thin air. By now, I was feeling sick to my stomach. I rushed to the bottom of the stairs and looked up at the speck of light peeking from behind the entrance. Sluggishly, I began my journey back up the slender stairwell. I heard the bullwhips cracking again, followed by the grief-stricken pleas for mercy, and I almost jumped on my skin. This was getting ridiculous. I needed to leave this basement as quickly as possible. So... With the keg snug in my arms, I scooted upstairs and slammed the basement door shut once and for all. The urge to break down and cry was tremendous. I had never been so scared in my life. When I delivered the keg to Brenna, she looked at me peculiarly. Jeez, you look like you've seen a ghost, she said. I let out one lowly laugh and then I scrambled for my belongings and I beelined it for the exit. As I was leaving, something compelled me to stop and turn around. It was now past closing time and the pub was silent. The chairs sat on top of tables and ready for their nightly slumber. The bar stools rested empty and tacked turn, all except for one. The woman sitting at the bar reappeared. She was looking straight at me. The corners of her lips raised in what could have been a smile. For a moment, I simply regarded her. Her auburn hair spilled from her eloquent straw hat, her eyes like black pearls. I waved goodbye to her as I left and collapsed onto my bed the moment that I got home. I slept like the dead. The following morning, I sent this email to Rachel, the owner of The Coach and Lantern. Dear Rachel, although my time at The Coach and Lantern has been short-lived, it's been both enjoyable and educational. We run a fine pub. That said, I hereby give you my two-week notice. Although I am grateful for the opportunity that you provided me, I feel like it's time for a career change. I want to write horror stories, 
Yes, it's time I write about ghosts and haunted houses and evil spirits and such. Sounds like fun, right? One last thing, I won't be venturing into the basement again, ever. Best of luck to you and your pub, Tony Starr. I bought a house, and it came with strange rules. Written by Null Pointer Sam. Hi, my name is Samuel, but Sam is fine. I've been working for the last couple of months as a web developer, and recently I had gotten a raise. This would allow me to move on from my parents' house in which this situation was just unbearable. However, it was difficult to find a house or apartment which didn't leave me drowned in debt. But suddenly, there was one that appeared like it was just for me. A big house, two floors and a backyard, for only 3000 Yeah, this was a total fake or someone just pulling a prank. But hey, I gave it a try. I was expecting some dude answering the phone, giving the direction of the house in which we will meet at. And then, I just find out that it was a park or something like that. Or maybe it was a scam and I would get robbed. But a woman answered the phone. I will refer to her as Alex. I asked about the house that I had found on the webpage. She just gave me an address to go and talk about the house and said something about meeting me in person. I thought that it was just a person selling her grandmother's house or whatever. The people get kind of special about a place, you know. Anyway, we agreed to meet at 3pm. Obviously, I checked the direction on Google Maps and I found out that it was an office building. Next day, I took a bus to her office. It took me about 15 minutes to get there. As soon as I had arrived, the guard told me where her office was. She received me and asked if I wanted something to drink, which I refused. I sat across her desk and then she started asking questions about me, like my work, family life, etc. After a moment of silence, she said, Look, Sam, you seem like a good kid, but this house is not made for a person like you. I suggest that you save your money and you find another one. Well, what's the problem with this one? I asked. Well, it is what many people would call a problematic house. By law, I'm forced to tell you what happened there, but it'll be better if I show you. And then she opened the drawer and took out a big folder, put it on the desk and slid it to me. I opened it. Inside were documented police reports. Murders, missing people, and drug bans were only the first three pages. Meanwhile, I read the file. and She started talking. The reason it is so cheap is because I just want to get rid of the place. I hope to call the attention of some mobs to use the house for money laundry. I cannot sell this house to any company for demolishing or building. It happens to be an antique house, so 
the government forbades me to do that. I won't stop you from buying it. I've lost too many years of my life with that problem. If you want it after looking at that folder, it's up to you. What she said really left me with a bad feeling. But the idea of spending another year with my parents was the only thing that I needed to make the decision. So I accepted. For the next two weeks, we took care of all the paperwork and we agreed to meet at the house. Alex refused to let me in before I signed. She told me once I had entered that it was my problem. Finally, the day arrived. I met her at the house. She was sitting at the door drinking coffee from the store. Well, Sam, here you have it. She extended me a folder. Here are all the documents that state this is now your property. And of course, the keys. Thank you, I replied. Guess I just need to buy some furniture. Oh, about that. Most of the previous owners didn't change the old ones out, and they're still in pretty good form. But if you don't like one, just throw the ones that aren't listed in the documents. She said goodbye and walked away, and I rushed to the door. But before I could stick the key, she yelled one last thing at me. Then you should sign one document in the folder. The inside of the house was dirty. Years of accumulating dust left it in a very bad state, but the furniture was in good shape like Alex had said. On the left side was the living room, with a large sofa and two single chairs around a table in front of the fireplace. Across was the dining table, a large 12-seat piece of wood with candlesticks. On the right side was the kitchen, it was big enough to have ten people working in it. I sat down at one of these single chairs in the living room. It was covered with a piece of cloth. And then I opened the folder and let the documents fall out onto the table. I quickly spotted the one she told me to sign. It was an old piece of paper. Like the ones you see in the western movies when the character has to sign a contract. I signed above the bottom line with my name on it. There was a folded paper as well. I will transcribe what I remember from it. Greetings. If you are reading this, it's because you are the new owner of the property. I'm sorry to tell you that this is not a welcome letter to tell you about how great your life will be at this house. It's a guide to keep you alive in this horrible place. This is a formality between the owners of this house if you decide to sell it after handing this paper to the next owner. There are some rules that you need to follow, and the consequences of breaking these rules are quite high. But I assure you that if you follow them, there is nothing to worry about. Let's get right to it. Rule number one. The butler and the dog. Now, this is more of a presentation than a rule. In the living room, you should find a silver bell. Ringing it will call the butler of the house. Refer to him as Mr. Bach. 
You will do anything you ask as long as it is related to house maintenance. He will not ask any money for it. However, he might request an object every other month. Give it to him. If you do not, nothing bad will happen. But he will not attend your call again after that. On the other hand, the canine is a St. Bernard. You may give it any name that you want. Whisper and he will come to you. It is important to know that these two entities do not go along and if I got to choose, I would go for the canine. Rule number two. The gas. There is a chance that unexpected guests come to the house. You can open the door and talk to them. However, it is forbidden to bring them into the house. Just let pass the ones you would expect it to visit. If you break this rule, go out of the house and never return. Now it is under their power. Sometimes you might find them already inside of the house. You can also engage in conversation with them. If you want to end the talk or if they stare at you without blinking for more than a minute, call Mr. Bach and tell him that the guest may leave the house. Let him handle it and do not look. It can be gross. Rule number three. The stairs. It takes 12 steps to get to the second floor. Keep that number in mind. If you count 14, keep going normally until 20 and the 21st will be the second floor. However, if you do not reach it at that one, run. We have not to know the first person who can tell us what happens if that catches you. It devours them. After 50 steps, you will find the second floor. Keep running through the hall and do not enter or look into the rooms. Jump at the end through the window. Rule number four. The bathroom. It is in the front of the main bedroom on the second floor. The one on the first floor is safe. Knock on the door every time you want to enter the room. If a lady named Madeline answers, wait five minutes and then enter normally. But if any male voice answers, call Mr. Bach. If no one answers, you may enter. Check the water in the sink. If the color is normal, do what you need. If red, break the mirror and open a little cut in your hand, and then put it under the stream until it is normal again. If a minute passes and it is still red, go out and wait one hour to try again. If green, fill up the bathtub, immerse yourself completely, and wait until it empties. Then you might proceed. Rule number five, the basement. If any of your belongings are lost, you will find them in the basement. Do not go alone and without any light source and call the dog. Once there, you will find a great dark spot on one of the walls. Order the dog to search your item in the dark and wait for him. If any other dog comes out, kill it. If the canine does not come back in five minutes, go out of the basement and try again the next day. Do not worry about the dog. Rule number six, the study room. It is the first door after these stairs on the second floor. 
Inside, you will find a great library. Enjoy any book of your choice or use it as a workspace. If any of the books fall off of the shelf on its own, take it and read it until it closes by itself, and then put it back on the shelf. Do not refuse to read it, neither take away or look despite whatever you hear or see. It'll take an offense to it. Also, wear a watch with the current time and check if the one in there has the same time as yours. Do not leave until they match. Rule number seven, the backyard. After 5 p.m., there is no one in the backyard. There is nothing happening in the backyard. You do not hear anything coming from the backyard. Rule number eight, the main bedroom. This is the only safe place on the second floor. Do not be outside of this room from 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. If you happen to be outside, I hope they do not find you. Sleep with the dog if that helps. Rule number nine, the house. As long as your expected guests are on the first floor, there will not be any danger at all. But get used to the fact that they forget about the dog or the butler. And last but not least, do not leave the house for more than a month. Sincerely, Arthur V, December of 1809. I've heard of stories like these for some time now, where there's a strange list of rules that you have to follow. So, initially, I thought Alex was just trying to play a prank on me or make fun of me. This made me laugh and it kept me entertained for a few minutes. Anyway, once I got settled, I decided to explore the second floor to see what was there. It was honestly great to have a new house. While going up, I took my phone out and opened up a chat with my best friend. We needed to break the house in and throw a party. I was so distracted that it took me some seconds to notice that I should have reached the second floor some steps before. And then I felt it. The coldest breath on my neck. The walls started to rot and I ran in panic. I could hear how that thing was coming for me. It knew that each step, it was more difficult than the other. After a minute of running up, I finally got to the second floor and I didn't stop running. My first thought was to enter a room and hide, so I stopped at the first one on the left. The door was wide open. Inside was a man tied to an electric chair. He yelled out for help, but suddenly, the chair turned on and I ran away and booked it out of there. Those screams that I heard were not coming from a human. It felt like the hall stretched on and on forever, like it was much longer than normal. But I finally reached the window, and I jumped through it without thinking. For what felt like about five minutes, it could have been longer, I fell through a void, where all sounds and senses faded away. And then I landed on the couch back on the first floor. Nearly having a panic attack, 
I took the keys and left the house, and I ran all the way back home to my parents' house. It's much later now, and I'm back in my room at my parents' house. I tried to call Alex, but she didn't pick up. Guys, I don't know what to do. Should I go back, or should I just count the money as a loss? Ten years ago, I found an old videotape in my attic. The content in it disturbed me forever. Written by Kaz, the Murphy fan. So, this all happened when I was 16. So nearly ten years ago at this point. It's funny how fast time goes by because I don't think I've been the same person since. You see, my entire childhood, my entire family considered me outgoing, charismatic, and rambunctious. They stopped using that last word quite a bit once I had entered through the gates of my teen years. Now, in present time, in my own words, I'm broken. My whole life that was once ahead of me, vanquished, left in the dust, all because of one night... One night. It's ironic how much I loved the concept of the internet in my early teenage years. The fact that you could talk to random people that you didn't even need to see in person about whatever you loved. It was incredible. And now, I just look at it as a wasteful, disgusting piece of junk. Not able to look at it the same after the same night that I will be getting into in a moment for a reason I still don't know and it was just random. And now, I have rented a busted up laptop, just to write out the experience that single-handedly ruined my entire view on life, and ruined my mind, turned it into a manifestation of death, grief, pain, violence, anger, psychopathic. I'm rambling on. I've always had that issue, nothing can really fix it. I'm assuming anyone bothering to read this is probably going to click off it because right now I just seem like a crazy old guy that got a hold of a computer and is typing some BS into a little box that says text optional. And even though when really, I'm only in my late 20s, it already seems like BS, huh? I promise you that I'm not making this up. It is not a joke. No one has believed me before and whenever I told them, they tried taking me to a therapist. All strangers, albeit. I haven't told anyone forever. Which I may need one because the attic of my child at home is a place that I never want to remember ever again. I need to jog through my memory a bit here because everything seems so foggy. It's still a blur, as if it happened only five minutes ago. But there's not much to really need a lot of brain power to remember. I'm an only child, and I lived in a quiet, suburban neighborhood, full of delightfulness, energy, and a lot of land. I didn't know any of my neighbors closely, but they seemed nice enough. It's not important to the story, though. Going back to my childhood, as I sit on this air mattress in this crappy, run-down hotel, to be honest, it's really great. I had a lot of stuff, whether it was toys, technology, stuff like that. 
lots and lots of friends too, even a girlfriend. At that time, life quite literally couldn't have been any better than it already was. It was a Saturday night, the weekend, so I got to stay up late. You all know how that is. I was in my room playing my 360 while my parents were asleep, drinking energy drinks since I was planning on pulling an all-nighter. I was succeeding since, if I can remember correctly, it was already midnight already. It was the first Halo, since I wanted to go back to it, and I died for the first time in the hour that I started playing it. Getting frustrated, but also proud of the progress that I had made so far. When I thought of the attic that was right down the hall of my house. I knew that I had never gone up there. Because my parents always said that it was full of boxes and they didn't want me going up there. The whole thing they said about it just being boxes kept floating in my head. Repeating itself as if my mind had just started disobeying me. Even when I thought on my head for those exact words to stop, I decided that I would just take a tiny peek just to see what it looked like. I kept my Xbox running for background noise so my parents wouldn't hear the creaking of the attic stairs and the attic itself. I snuck out of my room, checked to see if my parents were asleep, and to my luck they were. They were passed out and not looking like they would wake up anytime soon. Perfect, I thought, doing a little celebration, before I cut it out when I realized how dumb I looked. I closed the door a tad and tiptoed to where the attic door was. It was just in the middle of the bedroom hallway, not hard to find at all. I realized how loud it would be for me to open the attic door and have the ladder come swinging down. I winced at the thoughts and told myself that it wouldn't be loud at all. But I was lying to myself. I reached up to it and pulled the attic door down, and the ladder soon came down. I tried to catch it. It was 50% successful since I prevented the thud on the floor from being really loud, but it still made a lot of noise. I cussed myself out and started climbing up the ladder into the abyss that was the attic of my house. Every step that I took up was a cautious one making sure the ladder wouldn't creak loudly, in fear of waking up my parents and making them mad, even though I had my game volume up for my room to try and drown out the noise if I ever did make it. A minute passes after me being careful to not fall off the ladder or creak the ladder before I finally get my head into the attic. I take a look. There, there were no boxes, no boxes in sight. In fact, literally nothing was in sight. I start thinking, why did my parents lie about there being boxes up here when the attic was empty? As I'm trying to figure out the logic behind that, something in the corner of my eye catches my attention. I look and see a small old TV set up in the corner of the attic with a tiny chair and a videotape just sitting idly in front of it. I was in awe that there was actually something up here, and that it was so random. I started climbing to get myself fully into the attic. Once I do, I start blowing the cobwebs and the dust out of my face. It's clear that there hasn't been anyone up here in ages. Even the old TV, the chair, and the videotape were dusty. 
The attic was pretty large, so the distance from the TV and the attic door was pretty significant. Once I made it to the little TV setup, I looked back one last time at the attic door. My parents weren't up. Perfect. I picked up the videotape and proceeded to blow and wipe the dust off of it. I read the title. Jonathan and Cassie. Those were my parents' names. I quietly sighed, realizing that it was probably just a wedding video. I was still curious and bored though, so I figured out how to open up the VCR. And once I did, I celebrated a bit since I figured out how to work in old things such as this TV. And slowly inserted the videotape. The VCR started closing and pulling the videotape back like a monster eating its victim. Not allowing the victim to see the light before it vanishes. Cool, I thought. The TV quickly turned onto a loud static. My Winston gritted my teeth and quickly found the volume button and turned it all the way down. I looked back at the attic door to see if I saw my parents moving from downstairs, but they still weren't up. I breathed a sigh of relief, letting my heart rate drop since my heart started beating quicker than the speed of light, when the static started blasting through the speakers. The TV kept on a static for a while, and I started losing hope that anything was even going to play, before finally the video started the TV coming to life. A reminder that you remember the year the first photo was and pay attention to when the next photos were taken. On the screen, it was a photo of my mom and dad from 95, seemingly after they had gotten married. They were on a couch from the same living room of my house. Nice, I whisper. This was pretty cool, seeing old photos of my parents. They looked happy they were smiling, extremely happy. In fact, young, wild, and free. After 30 seconds, the video had a sudden static and then it cut to another photo. They were on the same couch and the date at the bottom said it was a few months later. They were still smiling, they still looked happy, but they looked a bit more tired. The contrast from the first photo and the second photo was slightly darker, but still nothing seemed off. I let myself relax as I tried to sit myself on the tiny chair that was also provided in the attic. I barely fit in it. Yet again, after 30 seconds, there was another sudden static and the photo changed. Six months later, after I was born. My parents were on the same couch, my mom holding me as a baby in her arms. But their smiles, their smiles were slightly withered. They looked more unhappy, more depressed but it still wasn't too noticeable. The contrast was, yet again, slightly darker, and I saw that bags were forming under their eyes. This time, a static happened after 10 seconds, and the photo on the screen had changed. One month later, I wasn't in my mom's arms in this photo, not even in my dad's. Like all the other photos, they were on the same couch, this photo was strikingly different, and it was disturbing. My dad was marginally slumped on the couch, and I could tell that he was trying to smile, but it just wasn't there. The bags under his eyes were extremely dark now. My mom, my mom in this photo was crying, 
She had tears all over her face and on the clothes that she was wearing. The bags under her eyes, just like my dad's, were extremely dark now. Her mouth was open like she was literally bawling. The photo was frightfully dark now. The photo switched after five seconds, no static this time. And my parents in this photo were even worse. This photo was only three days later. My dad was in the same position as the last photo, but something was leaking from his head. But I couldn't tell what it was because the photo was really dark and his eyes were closed. My mom, to a degree, was also slumped against the couch, holding on to her stomach, crying again, her eyes open, staring directly at the camera. I shivered. What the heck were these photos? I awaited the next photo to suddenly come up, bracing myself for another disturbing picture to see. I could have turned it off, but you know what they say, curiosity killed the cat. Curiosity killed my childhood in this case. It took a minute and a half for the static to happen and the next photo to come up, and dear God, I wish I had turned it off. In this photo, the date one day later... The photo, not dark as the other photos, had a brightness where I could see everything. I saw my parents, on the same couch as they had been on in every photo. The couch in my living room. They were dead. My dad had his throat opened. His face was ripped clean from his head, fully slumped on the couch. My mom, my mom had every piece from her body cut every part scattered across the couch. And when I saw her head, her face was the same as my father's, gone. The couch was utterly soaked, and seeing the remnants behind their face made me gag. I started panicking, I started whimpering, and all I could think was, what the heck? How could my parents be gone? They'd been taking care of me my whole life. This had to have all been made on Halloween for some type of prank. What are you doing up there? I heard my mom's voice from behind me. I jump and look behind me and see my mom and dad down below, and angry look on their faces. I don't even think and impulsively I shout. I'm sorry, I, I was just curious, I... We told you not to. My dad started to growl. I started hearing his tongue click as I saw his face twitch. He finished his sentence as he did this. We told you not to go up there. I started backing up against the wall confused as to what was happening. My mom took a closer look to me and gave me a reassuring smile. The smile I was so familiar with. She put a hand on my shoulder. I suddenly felt more comforted. I thought that I was going to be fine. It's okay, she smiles, a normal smile. I let my breath go and try to smile back. Before abruptly, her voice gets gurgly and achy, like she was trying to throw up, her arms getting immensely stiff, and she says, We aren't mad at you, son. Before I could ask what happened to her voice, she put her hand up to her face. I watched my dad stop his twitching and do the same thing. 
and then watch as my parents start to rip their faces off their head, as if they were tearing a piece of paper. I saw what was behind their face. These things, they weren't my parents. All I saw before I screamed was an alien-like paled and disoriented face as they pulled my parents' faces off their head. They started to screech loudly that nearly made me go deaf as I broke away from them and started screaming as I literally jumped from the attic right back downstairs. I started running to the living room as I could hear the sound of crawling and growling from behind me. It sounded like it was on the walls and it was fast and I knew that I wasn't going to get away safely. I made it to the living room and I tripped on my face on the hard wooden floor. I grunted and I quickly lifted my face up and I see my parents. My real parents from the sixth and last photo from that videotape. All of my mom's limbs scattered across the couch. My dad laying there, their faces missing. I gasp and look behind me and see those creatures, still in my parents' clothing, staring down at me. Their faces were so terrifying now that they got my parents' faces off that I think I literally crapped myself again. It's been real fun playing dress up as your parents. The thing pretending to be my dad gargled out, almost struggling to let those words out. They both then started twitching violently, making horrible throwing up like sounds before eventually shape-shifting out of my parents' body into their normal form. They were abnormally tall, their bones disoriented, large claws and super skinny. I was paralyzed with fear, unable to move. Now you're next. The same one hisses. I see their sly smiles form across their hideous faces as I covered my face with my arms, closed my eyes and screamed, preparing for the same thing to happen to me, just like they did with my parents. I screamed for what seemed like forever, until I hear a knocking on the front door. It was one of my neighbors. They had come to save me. I could hear them yelling something along the lines of, What's going on in there? But I wasn't too sure because it was getting drowned out by my screams. I opened my eyes slightly and saw that the creatures were no longer there. The bodies of my parents were no longer on the couch and my neighbor that was at the door was banging harder on it. I stopped screaming and I put my arms down. Tears rolling down my face. The confusion and fear still running through my mind. What I did next is one I still regret because I easily could have handled it differently. Instead of answering the door and trying to tell my neighbor somehow about what happened, or calling the police, I opened the sliding back door of my house and started running away from my house, ducking behind stuff to avoid being seen. My logic at the time was that people would think that I was crazy about the whole TV thing. The bodies of my parents were no longer on the couch and I didn't even know where those creatures went, where my parents were. I just didn't want to have to deal with people not believing me. I never even saw my friends or my girlfriend ever again. I was eventually adopted by a really nice family a month later after being put in the foster care system. I don't remember exactly how I was put in an orphanage. Maybe the owners saw me walking across the street tired, and they knew that I didn't have a family. 
I'll message those interested in knowing the answer if I remember. If I don't break this laptop after posting. I didn't stay with them for that long though, because I kept remembering about the incident that happened at my house just a year before, and I couldn't stand to be in with another family. So I just packed up my stuff, left and rented an apartment with the bare minimum of money that I had, and I got a job. I still have that same job, even though it drains me physically and mentally every night. But what's the point of trying to have a happy life now? I've been non-stop drinking for the past 10 years, smuggling bottles of liquor even when I lived with my foster family and before I turned 21. I'm sure when I moved out, they found old whiskey bottles underneath my bed, because I never bothered to throw that stuff away. The rest of my family heard about what had happened, about how I ran away, but not about my parents. I don't think anyone has found out really. They just know that I vanished, and my parents vanished without a trace. But I know the reality of what happened. Or do I? Do I really know? Was it just a hallucination, or am I crazy? I've gone through years of getting kicked out of apartments for being too loud when I scream at the top of my lungs after pouring a bottle of beer, attempting to get those memories out of my head, being too messy, and walking downstairs to the lobby drunk. Every dang apartment complex. Which is why now I'm at the crappiest of them all. The worst one that I've ever been in. Walls being ripped apart. A horrible stench that smells like death and bugs everywhere in the hallways. But hey, they don't give a crap about what I do, so why should I care? Looking back at this now, I think I understand the reality of this world. The reality of those things that took my parents' lives when I was only a baby. Terrorizing them for a year, before eventually just ending them. The horror sinks in every single time I remember that I was raised by those creatures for 16 years, and I still don't understand what their motivation was, what they were waiting for. Why would they wait 16 years to try and pounce on me, show me what they really are? I don't want to sound crazy, but what else do you want me to say? They are what lurks in the night. They creep, they crawl, they break, they ruin. If any of you for any reason want to leave a comment on this, go right ahead, I don't care. I'll try to apply to as many as I can before I go out and smash this godforsaken laptop to a million pieces. I'll burn it and then proceed to burn its ashes, and then throw those ashes into a wood chipper. I'm sorry if this isn't the happy ending that you all wanted. I'm sorry that I didn't become some hero. Avenging my parents, going out to try and find these creatures that ruined my life. And trust me, I wanted to rip their heads off and keep it as a souvenir. Hang it up on my wall and laugh at their bodies for taking my parents away from me. For pretending to be them. I don't even know what my parents' actual personalities were like. Or maybe they had nailed it. Because from what I have seen in my childhood, the rest of my family were very normal around them. Which makes me think, how long were these creatures studying and watching my parents? Why did they choose them? And what were the point of the pictures? I'm trying to drink this all off, but I still have a tremendous weight on my shoulders, an omen over my head, that I can't seem to get away. 
No matter how many shots of vodka I take, no matter how drunk I get. Now that I think about it, maybe I can do something about this. For the past couple of months, I've been hearing quiet crawls on my apartment walls and quiet gurgling from the other rooms of my apartment. In the middle of the night, I see tall, skinny shadows from my closet or my hallway. Maybe just maybe, those creatures found out where I lived and they've come to finish the job on me. Maybe it's for the best, although I really don't want to see their hideous, disgusting faces ever again. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go out and get on my air mattress, turn on a Christmas movie with a bottle of tequila in my hands, and continue hearing those crawling and gurgling sounds outside of my room, and let the creatures know that I'm aware of their presence, and let the inevitable happen to me. Thank you. Thank you for allowing yourself to read the events of my traumatizing past. Be thankful that this will never happen to you. Now I'll try to read the comments if I'm still alive. Have you ever heard of a skinwalker? Written by Lilith Maynot. I've avoided telling this story before because I want to believe that it wasn't real, that it was just a dream. But I've read so many similar encounters that I feel like maybe I should tell someone. Maybe it was real, and something like this really lives out there. I wish I would have known that it was possible back then. The story starts at my aunt's house. At the time, my mother and father were going through a divorce. I was about 11, and my younger sister was only 6. The details of the divorce don't really matter, but we were staying at my aunt's house with my mom until she could find a place that she could afford on her own. My sister and I were too young to fully understand so for us, it was almost like a vacation. It helped that my aunt had a really cool house. It was big and seemed even bigger to a couple of young kids. I don't really know house lingo, but it was very modern, with two long main wings. One side of the house housed the bedrooms and a small library. The other had the kitchen. The kitchen had these huge windows, the kind lots of more modern-styled houses have, where they take up the entire wall. Nestled in this wall of windows was a sliding glass door, but my sister and I rarely used it, because it was large and heavy and hard for us to open up. Another thing about these windows, though, was that they faced the woods. My aunt's house was surrounded, right on the edge of a large wooded area. The trees ended only a couple of feet away from where the sliding glass door was. Of course, this was one of the benefits of her house. Living near the woods was so peaceful. Or at least, that's what my aunt always said. My aunt had a small sitting area by the windows where she could relax and watch nature. She told us that oftentimes she had had little herds of deer walk through, 
that she had even seen a mountain lion once. Anyway, you get the idea. It was a big house with big windows and it sat close to the woods. For the majority of the time that we lived there, we had no issue. My sister and I would even go play in the woods, always making sure to stay within sight of the house. My mother would often sit in the sitting area by the windows, just to keep an eye on what we were doing. We would play hide-and-seek, or tag, or see if we could climb up the taller trees. Things changed at night, though. I hated those windows at night. When I would walk down the long hallway to the south wing of the house just to get a glass of water from the kitchen, I would always see the trees moving, swaying unnaturally. It wasn't like it was from the window, where it started from the top and it would work its way down. But it was like something was pushing against them from below and the tree shook from that. It freaked me out, but I was 11 at the time, so it wasn't that hard. I usually would just hurry up and get my water and then run back to my room. I hated it so much that I rarely forgot to grab water before bed after the first couple of times. It wasn't worth risking that creepy stuff again. Later on, though, I wasn't really given a choice. One night, I had a dream that my mother had been calling me. Her voice was coming from where the kitchen was located, asking for my help with something. I stood up from my bed and made my way towards where she had called out, my brain still fuzzy from being asleep. Her voice was soft, but it carried to me as I walked, warm and familiar. The closer that I got, though, the weirder her voice began to sound, becoming slightly distorted and deeper. It was like a mix of my mother's voice, with some animalistic cries that just got louder, until I was shocked awake, just before I stepped through the doorway into the kitchen. I quickly looked around, confused. My mom wasn't there, and the whole house was dark except for the moonlight that illuminated just enough of the room for me to know that it was empty. I shrugged it off as a sleepwalking dream, though I had never had one before. So I turned around and I walked back to my room. A few nights passed before it happened again. This time, it was my father who had called for me. Please, he called. I need to talk to you. Come here. Just like last time, I stood up from my bed like in a trance, aware and unaware of what I was doing at the same time. Each step brought me closer to the kitchen, where I could hear my father's voice, it becoming more gravelly and broken as I walked closer. I stepped into the kitchen and thought that I saw him there, 
standing by the kitchen island, illuminated in the moonlight. And then he turned and looked at me, and I woke up, realizing there was nothing there after all. It took a few days again, but on the third night, I heard my little sister. She was crying for me, telling me that she hurt herself, and that she needed my help. I stood up. I started hurrying to the kitchen, ever had the big sister. But this time, I barely noticed when her voice had started changing, becoming a distorted gasp as I drew closer. I stepped into the kitchen and saw her. She was knelt, crying on the ground near the windows. I started to walk over to her, but stopped when I had realized something. She was kneeling behind the glass. She was outside. Her cries became a laugh and I startled awake, but I still saw a shape kneeled just outside of the window. Only it was bigger and dark and misshapen. I screamed in terror and it moved, faster than anything I had seen before, disappearing into the woods. My mother came running from her room, turning on my lights and comforting me. I told her about the sleepwalking and passing, so she chalked it all up to me, still having been asleep when I told her about the monster. She walked me back to my room and had me take some sleeping medicine just to help me get back to sleep. After that, everything seemed like it might finally be okay. A week passed and then two. My mom found a nice apartment and that she planned to move us all into. My sister and I were sad to leave my aunt's house, but at the same time, I was secretly relieved. I had basically been on edge every night since the events had happened, wondering if it would call for me again. But everything was silent until the night before we were meant to leave. I was just starting to drift off when I heard shuffling outside of my door. I froze, certain that the monster had returned for me, that it had somehow gotten inside of the house, and it was about to open my door. But the sound simply moved past me and down the hallway toward the kitchen. I stayed where I was, waiting to make sure it wasn't a trick and then got up as quietly as I could and crept over to the door. I hovered, unsure if I should open it. After a few seconds, I made up my mind that I was going to run to my mom's room and wake her up. I slowly cracked open the door, and I peeked into the hallway toward where these sounds were coming from. There at the end of the hallway and shuffling into the kitchen was the form of my little sister. I blinked and then squeezed my eyes shut and opened them up again, making sure that I wasn't asleep. But no, she was real. 
and she was disappearing into the kitchen right before my eyes. As I realized this, I realized that I could also hear something. The kind of faraway moaning whine coming from the direction that she was going to. Dread ran up my body, and I looked down the hallway at my mother's door, the opposite direction that my sister was walking. Fear told me to run and get her first, but instinct moved my feet towards the kitchen, where my sister had now gone out of my sight. I ran as silently as I could down the hallway and peered through the door to look for her. There she was. She was standing right in front of those windows. Her eyes opened but glazed over. As I watched, I realized that the trees were swaying once again. The same way they used to, but much faster now. And the swaying seemed to be getting closer, moving towards us at an alarming speed. I could hear branches breaking and the trees creak and protest as something hit them and the moaning whine that I heard from far away. It was getting louder, sounding like a dying animal. One tree was rocked so violently that a flock of birds flew screaming out of it, out into the night air. As this was happening, my sister was reaching out for something. The lock on the sliding door. Even at only 11 years old, I knew that something was coming through the woods towards us, and it was running, sprinting, right at my little sister. I ignored my brain screaming at me to run the other way, and I raced towards my sister. That noise was all-encompassing now. It had become a screeching so loud that it sounded like it was all around me. I grabbed my sister around the waist, pulling her back just before her fingers touched the lock, and I pulled both of us behind the wall beside the windows, just out of sight. The sound stopped. The trees no longer swayed, and the screeching had fallen silent. I could hear my sister breathing frantically, but I held a hand over her mouth and closed it, willing her not to cry. My own breathing was shallow and fast, but as I tried to quiet it, I realized that there was another sound. My sister's breathing, my breathing, and the even breathing of someone, something else, standing just outside the window next to us. A too large humanoid shadow blocked the moonlight that usually fell into the kitchen, and I watched the figure reach out its unnaturally long arm. I held my breath as I heard a scratch against the sliding door and saw the shadow of the creature's arm touch where the handle of the door was. After a second, the creature withdrew its arm and let it fall to its side. And then it stood there, still for what felt like hours. Finally, the shadow shrunk, and I could hear whatever it was leave. The underbrush rustled and the trees swayed, but the sound moved away this time instead of towards us, 
Still, I didn't move. I waited until all traces of its presence was gone, before I slowly pulled my sister away toward the hall, keeping out of sight of the windows as much as I could. My sister was crying as I led her down the hallway, and I think that I was squeezing her hand too tight, but I felt overwhelming relief as I opened the door to my mother's room and crawled into her bed. My mother never believed us, of course, and we moved away the next day. I refused to return to my aunt's house ever since, and she eventually too moved away. I've never had an encounter like that again, but that might be because I stay away from the woods like a plague now. If you're a fan of hiking or camping, or living near nature at all, all I can say to you is, good luck. Forward, 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 help. Written by Bloodstream City. I received the following email from Stuart, an old friend that I haven't spoken to in years. At first, I thought a spammer had gotten a hold of his address book. Within a few sentences, however, I knew that it was written by Stuart himself. A long and disturbing message followed. To say that it worried me would be an understatement. To all contacts, from Stuart K. Subject, Help. I need to assure you all that this is serious. I'm not joking or making up stories or any of that. This is real. It's real and it's happening to me. If you're receiving this, it's because I know you enough to ask you for help. And I'm praying that at least one of you has the heart and the means to offer it. The truth is, I'm a thousand miles from home and I don't know who else to turn to. The police can't help me. I mean, maybe they could, but I can't get close enough to them to find out. Hopefully one of you can help me, or you can forward this to someone who can. This might take a while to explain. I'm going to give you as much detail as I can so you can understand everything about what's going on, and you can make your own decision from there. Most of you know where I am right now. Danielle and I are in Prague on our honeymoon. Some of you were even at our wedding. God, it already seems like a lifetime ago. I can't believe it's only been five days since we celebrated the best day of our lives and now we're at our lowest point ever. We got to the Czech Republic four days ago. The first two days in Prague were good. It was a little boring for our taste, so we decided to ask around about any parties that might be going on. Conrad, one of the guys at the hostel, told us that he had seen a party flyer hanging at an internet cafe up the block. Sure enough, we found the flyer that he was talking about. It was no bigger than a postcard, tagged to the community board, an announcement for some kind of rave. But the problem was, there was no address on it, just a long, handwritten website on the back. Danielle wanted to forget the whole thing, but I was still curious. I took the flyer to the girl at the cafe's counter and asked her if she knew anything about it. She said that she had no idea. She hadn't even known about the flyer, but that I shouldn't even think of visiting the website without a Tor browser and a good VPN. 
Now, I'm not a computer expert, but I know enough to know what she was talking about. This was a dark web territory. The kind of thing where you don't want anyone knowing who or where you are. I asked her if she knew where I could secure that kind of access, and she told me that for a hundred American dollars she just might. I thought Danielle was going to try to stop me again for sure, but by then, she was getting curious herself. So I gave the girl the money and she brought me to a computer in the back, away from where people could see what we were doing. I know it sounds crazy and stupid, and all of those things just for a party. I know that. But we were honestly just looking for some innocent fun on our honeymoon. A little danger before we settled down and got old together. We just had no idea how dangerous things were going to get. After typing in the URL, I logged onto the site. It was fairly simple yet, like no website I had ever seen. Everything was made up of red letters, even the background and the window frame. All the page had was a story about some guy looking at himself in the mirror and not trusting his own reflection. For a minute, we thought that we had been pranked, possibly by the girl at the internet cafe, tricking us out of a hundred bucks. But just as we were about to give up, a pop-up appeared on the screen in big red letters. Do you like fun? Yes or no? Danielle and I laughed at the question, but I figured what the heck and typed yes into the box. After another minute, the pop-up disappeared, and it was replaced by another. It was a formal invitation to the greatest party in all the world. Do you accept? Danielle gave me the go-ahead, so I typed yes again. We waited a few minutes. So long so that I thought the computer had frozen, but then a new pop-up appeared. This time it was an address, and a reminder to bring our dancing shoes. We left the internet cafe and walked towards where we thought the address might be, stopping to buy some booze on the way so we wouldn't have to trust whatever was it offered at the party. That was my idea, and it made Danielle feel better about what we were doing. The problem was, we couldn't find the address. I asked an old guy closing up a newspaper stand if he knew where it was, and he conveniently didn't know any English, or at least pretended not to. We got a little bit lost after that, and it was starting to get late, so I decided to look up the address on my phone. I didn't like doing it without all the protection that we had had back at the internet cafe, but I figured there wasn't much risk in looking up a simple address on the internet. I mean, people do it every day. It turned out to be the location of an old, indoor flower market which seemed like a strange place to have a party. We went there with a lot of hesitation, walking through a few blocks of industrial buildings that were either abandoned or in terrible condition. Daniel doubted that we were even in the right place, but then, when we were thinking of turning back, we saw it. The building was about half a block long, concrete, with a massive skylights for a roof. Half the windows were broken and the others too dirty to see through. As we approached, we could hear a big party going on outside. Loud music thumping. And so we felt confident enough to hold each other's hand and head inside. The party was immediately wilder than we had expected. A hundred bodies dancing to heavy dance music, all crammed together in an old brick and metal building. Most of them either had too much clothing on or not enough but that wasn't the craziest part. 
It was the fact that they were all wearing masks. At this point, I was starting to get a little suspicious of Stuart's email. I had heard stories about those parties always somewhere in Europe, always full of details about mysterious partiers in strange places. If the storyteller really got carried away, it would become less of a dance party and more of a different type of party. It was usually about as real as alligators and sewers. But the thing was, I knew Stuart. As long as it had been since we had talked, he hadn't changed much from the guy that I knew, from what I could tell. And the guy I knew wouldn't make up stories for attention, plain and simple. He might have joked around occasionally, but he pretty much hated pranks, calling them mean-spirited and unfunny. And more importantly, and all the time that I had known him, he had never lied to me or anyone that I knew. Not even once. That and that alone was the thing that kept me reading on. There were all kind of masks on these people. Some looked like foxes or dogs or grinning ghouls. Others were more of a Venetian Mardi Gras style, black and gold with glitter and lace. Blocking our way in was a girl in a Japanese demon mask. She wore a white suit with white shoes. She stopped us and asked us if we had any invitations. I have expected her to sound Japanese, but her accent was distinctly Eastern European. Though exactly where she was from, I couldn't make out. I didn't know what to say. But then Danielle told her about the website from the flyer. The Japanese demon girl stared at us for what felt like a full minute. Eventually, like a spell that had been broken, she handed a mask to each of us. They were white faces with slits for eyes, and she didn't let us walk past her until we put them on. It's safe to say that Danielle and I were weirded out, but as we drifted into the crowd, the loud dance music pumping from speakers somewhere above, we started to get into it. The lights were spinning and strobing, smoke spewed out of machines. The stars twinkled through the broken skylights as we danced and drank and enjoyed ourselves, looking forward to our new life. I realize this may sound like a lot for an email, especially a cry for help, but I'm only telling you this because it was the last good moment that we shared together. After a while, the booze was starting to go through me. I asked one of the masked partiers where the bathroom was and he pointed to a door at the other side of the building. Danielle held my mask and waited for me as I ducked through the rusty metal door, which I learned too late led to not a bathroom but outside to a back lot. I tried to turn back, but the door had already closed behind me. The music immediately cut out. Standing in an empty lot, overgrown with weeds and loud with crickets, I thought someone had played a trick on me. But then I realized it was probably what people were using for a bathroom. So I stepped carefully into these shoulder-high weeds and went as quickly as I could. When I was done, I had found the door I had exited from was actually locked and no amount of banging was going to get anyone's attention. The most intense panic attack I had ever felt hit me as I realized what I had done. I had dragged Danielle to an illegal party in some abandoned building on the outskirts of Prague without telling anyone where we had gone, and then I had topped it all off by leaving her alone. I ran through that weed-infested lot faster than I've ever run in my life. The building was half a block long, but it felt like ten. 
It took me a few minutes of weaving around and tripping over a dead brush to clear it, hearing nothing but my own heartbeat the entire time. By the time that I had made my way around to the front of the building and the empty street that it sat on, my lungs were on fire and I was covered in terror sweat. And yet that was nothing compared to the feeling that hit me next. When I got back inside, it was an empty building. No people, no music, no lights. No Danielle. Alone, standing in the middle of an abandoned flower market, with smoke evaporating around me, I felt like I was sinking. How had everyone disappeared in just a few moments? It seemed impossible. I ran out of the building and back to the empty street, hoping to catch sight of someone running or getting into a car, or even evidence that someone had. But it was all just an empty street, full of empty buildings. I had nothing to go on, no one to follow. But then I got a phone call. I clawed the phone out of my pocket so fast that I almost dropped it, praying to see Danielle's name on the caller ID. But it wasn't her. In fact, it wasn't anyone. The phone number just said, blocked. I almost didn't pick up. But the thought that it might be Danielle, that there was even a chance of it, made my decision for me. Hello, Stuart. A deep voice said, sending a chill up my back. It was distorted, almost inhuman. They were either using a voice changer or had a damaged throat of some kind. I asked them who they were, what they wanted, and I wasn't polite about it. Either they knew something that I needed to know immediately, or it had nothing to do with Danielle and they were wasting my time. But their reply in that same alien voice made my heart drop a thousand miles. Those words I'll never forget. A hundred years from now, I could recite them word for word. Go to police. She dies. Talk to anyone. She dies. Bring coin to Red Warehouse. She lives. I shouted into the phone demanding they let Daniel go, but it was too late. The line had gone dead, leaving me screaming at no one. The people in the mass, whoever they were, had made their demands, and yet I didn't even know what they were talking about. Bring a coin to the Red Warehouse. What kind of cryptic insanity was that? In full-blown panic, I ran all the way to the internet cafe where we had gotten the invitation, but it was already long closed. In all the craziness, I hadn't even realized how late it was. I jogged back to the hostel, nearly exhausted, and asked Conrad and anyone else I could find if they knew about either a red warehouse or a group of psychos in mass. No one had seen a red warehouse that they could remember, and absolutely no one said anything about the people in the masks. Like the guy at the newspaper stand, they either didn't know or they pretended not to. I went back to our room to see if, by some miracle, Danielle had reappeared there, possibly after making an escape, but the room was empty. Empty, except for one thing. There was a folded up piece of paper sitting on the bed, which I grabbed and immediately unfolded. It had only two words written on it, but they were deep enough to make my blood go cold. Stop questions. I nearly broke down right then and there. Who are these people and how is it that they seem to be everywhere and nowhere? They had to be watching me and know that I was asking questions, and yet I had seen no one. After I gathered myself, I pocketed the note. 
It was the one piece of evidence I had that these people even existed, and I left the hostel. I must have walked around all night searching for a red warehouse, for a needle in a haystack. I went back toward the abandoned flower market, figuring that that made sense. But when it didn't, I didn't find any red buildings, so I started circling out further and further, expanding the search until it felt like I had walked across half the city. I got more desperate as the night went on, picturing all the terrible things they might be doing to Danielle. I even searched on my phone for red warehouses, red buildings, and just plain warehouses, hoping to narrow it down. I swore that I was being watched from the windows and alleys when my back was turned, but whenever I looked, there was no one there. But when I did it, when I finally found it, I knew right away that it was the one that I was looking for. It was the kind of place you wouldn't give a second look to if you were just passing by. But once you knew to look for it, once you had some clue of the terrible things happening inside, you couldn't help but notice how wrong it looked. Not a single homeless person or stray dog were anywhere near the building, like they all knew to keep their distance. Even the rats stayed away from that place. Me, I had no other choice. I walked through the front door of the red warehouse expecting a guard or a bouncer or something, but found no one there to stop me. I got the feeling that they didn't worry much about people trying to get in. The warehouse was old and falling apart, pitch dark with a ceiling of rusted out girders. It had been built as one big open space, but then cut up into smaller rooms by hand-built walls. Sheets of corrugated metal were soldered together with fences and discarded highway signs, where used bricks mixed with nailed-together wood. Indescribable smells and sounds hit me from every side as I walked through that warehouse, not wanting but having to look inside the rooms for some sign of Danielle. Even now, my mind is struggling to make sense of those images, to the point where I might be combining some of them. Not that it even matters, it was all one big nightmare. I saw a young girl wearing a baby doll mask. She was seated at a small table and was shoveling spoonfuls of slop into her plastic mouth. I saw a man with no feet lying on a hospital gurney. He was in what I can only describe as ecstasy as a man with an apron cut strips from his back. I saw a woman struggling to breathe inside a layer of black latex. It was one confusing scene after another. A room full of guns with eight blindfolded men standing over an old man, shooting up in a lounge chair. An incubator full of hissing cockroaches. A large book, heavy, propped up on a table with a cover that looked like dried skin. An Indian man with no eyes with wires attached to his face. And in every shadow, a computer screen with someone behind it. A camera connected to some place in the world. Silent eyes watching. Finally, I reached a room with someone in it that I recognized. The girl in the white suit and Japanese demon mask was standing next to a small crate maybe three feet high, surrounded by four men twice her size. Each of them wore a different mask. At least one of them I recognized from the flower market. The demon mask girl asked me for the coin but instead of listening to her, I demanded to see Danielle. You can't see her. You can only hear her, she said. 
and then she kicked the crate next to her. I had thought that it was too small to fit someone inside of it, but I was wrong. The shots and cries that came from inside belonged to Daniela. She must have been horribly cramped inside that box, barely able to breathe. I nearly pounced on the girl, but the four men stopped me. When I had calmed down, I asked why they went through so much trouble to take people. Why didn't they just grab them off the street? Honestly, I wish I hadn't asked. She said it was because they liked to have fun. Even behind the mask, I could tell that she was smiling. And then she told me I could exchange the coin for the crate. But I said that I didn't know what coin she was talking about. Her reply was as strange as it was disturbing. Any coin we choose to accept. I asked her who we were, who the voice on the phone was, but she only laughed. She didn't stop. When I left, she was still laughing, the sound of it mixing with the hissing of cockroaches and the stretching of latex. These people are crazy. All they're asking for is a coin. One coin for Danielle's life. That's all I need to do when they'll let her go. I'm going back now and I hope to God I choose the right coin. This is the part that I need your help with. If the coin doesn't go in my favor, I need someone to do the same thing for me. I'll write you all again tomorrow if I make it out. If you don't hear from me, that means it didn't go well. I beg you not to go to the police. If you even talk to them, these people will take you out. Don't even talk to each other. They were very clear about this. Somehow they'll know. They're watching even when you don't think they are. If you find it in your heart to help, come to Prague. Search for the Red Warehouse and bring a coin. If you can't or if you're too scared, or you don't have the means, please forward this to everyone you know. Maybe one of them can help. Stuart. That was the end of his email. The message was strange enough on its own, but then, a little while later, Stuart blind CC'd me on a second email. To collector from Stuart K. Subject. It's done. I sent the email you told me to. Please, just let Danielle go. I didn't give the address so you can trace them by their searches. There's only one thing I'm begging you. Whoever shows up, just make it quick. It seemed like a mistake. An accidental click. If not then, it was a secret to cry for help. I deleted the email as fast as I could, before anyone found out that I had read it. But then, just a little after that... I received one final email. This time it was from Collector, and all it said was this. Would you like to have some fun? How I Created God Written by Loki382 Life gets rather boring after you have lived for millions of years. But you humans have always given me something to do. Unlike other gods, I like to cause chaos for fun. As a matter of fact, it was my favorite thing to do. Every now and then, I would dip my finger into your world and stir up some chaos. You could probably pinpoint every spot in history that I had a part in. I was a little cruel to you guys. Now, while seeing the destruction I caused was amusing... 
The real enjoyment was seeing how you humans would pick yourself back up from it. No matter what I did to you guys, you would always come out stronger and develop ways to handle my chaos. It was fascinating, to be honest. The way you humans could always invent things to defend against me. You humans were smart and different, and a lot like us gods in many ways. All my friends thought of me as crazy or a lunatic, but I didn't care. They were all guilty of far worse things. At least I didn't go around as an eagle and try to get with every woman that I could see. All of us gods had something to do to ease our boredom. So, what was the harm of giving you humans some challenges? Without me, you guys wouldn't have grown into what you are today. So I was doing you guys a favor. My chaos is what shaped your world into what it is today. And I take pride in that. There is only one thing that I do regret. The biggest mistake that I made. It was one of my greatest creations. Something that became so powerful that it wiped out all of us. It all started with an idea. Something that I had thought of while I was bored. I wanted to make something new. Something that would cause more chaos than I had ever caused. It would divide the humans into two. It would cause wars. Civilizations to fall. Beliefs scattered. It was big. My great idea. If only I would have known the destruction that it would truly cause. You see, I wanted it to be bigger than any of us. More powerful than any being that has or was already existing. So I got to work in building the perfect being. The one above all. The one to give you humans hope. I started building and creating my child. Or as you like to call it. God. When I made it, it was nothing more than a ball of light that shined in the sky, barely even having a mind of its own. You probably could have pointed it out in the night sky. It shined the brightest in the vast sea of stars. It was like my child in some sort of way, something I looked after every night and day. It gave me something to do. I would feed it to other stars in the night sky. Countless galaxies were destroyed and wiped out because of me. I would also feed it to human souls. Good and righteous souls. Now at first, they were just small stars, but eventually, I started feeding it to the biggest stars that I could find. I made sure the stars I gave it were far away from your world, so that it wouldn't cause any sort of destruction. I wanted this creation to be big, to be beautiful. This was a process that took millions of years and I was obsessed with this creation. I wanted it to be the most powerful god. The one above all, the ruler of all of us. That's why I fed him so much. The more stars and souls it ate, the more powerful it became. The brighter that it shined. I wanted this creation to be something all of the others would look up to. Something to give us hope. The thing though, the more power I gave it, the more power that it would want. Power does that to everything. I've seen it countless times with humans. The more powerful something becomes, the more power they want. They will do anything for just a little more, 
annihilate whole cities, destroy entire populations, even give up an eye. Countless wars have been because people wanted more power, and countless have died. Gods and humans are not so different. Even the most powerful of gods still fall for the curse power gives you, and mine was no exception. When my god was born, it was nothing but beautiful. It was neither a girl nor a boy, yet its physique was so perfect I can't even describe it. It had a physical form but not at the same time. It was a star in the shape of God, and it was mine. It could speak every language, its voice booming yet so calm and peaceful at the same time. It moved graciously through the vast realms of our existence, and I moved with it. The light it shined was brighter than all the stars in the sky, and it gave me hope. Hope that one day, we gods would have a ruler. I did not tell anyone about my creation. I wanted it to grow and become what it meant to be before I revealed it. It was very fascinated by you humans too. It constantly watched you guys from a distance, not disturbing anything or causing any chaos like me. It just watched. I love my child. I was its father and I was so fascinated by it. It was so peaceful, so nice and beautiful, and it was mine. I felt so happy. I felt the love a father has for his child. Time moves strangely in the realm of creation. It does not correlate with the time you humans created. The past, future, and present all exist at once, intertwining with the fabrics of the reality of time. It was how we could see everything, because everything existed at once. It's really hard to explain it to you, for human minds are not meant to understand the concept of this realm, of my child's home. My creation understood everything. It saw more than everything. It saw the end and beginning in all the realms and realities. It watched the creation of Earth and all the realms and the destruction of it. It saw the birth of God and the death of them all. It watched as you humans destroyed yourselves, and watched as you rebuilt and started again. It watched nature slowly grow through Earth and watched you humans destroy it. It would watch everything, still not interfering with the work of mankind. This went on for millions of years and I watched my creation as it observed you guys. It would constantly ask me about you humans, about why you fight and why you all hate each other. And I just told it that you humans are different from us, that we could not understand unless we were human. I explained to it that you humans look up to us as deities, and that it's our job to protect them and also destroy them. For we are the makers and saviors of mankind, and also the destruction and end. I still remember the old days of just me and my child, oh, how perfect they were. We would make games out of you humans, betting on who would win a war and what civilization would fall first. It was actually pretty fun. You guys always surprised us. While we gods were powerful beings, you humans had a way with each other that we gods did not. You could go to war with each other one day, yet become allies in only a year. 
or kill someone's brother and be accepted into the family and be forgiven. It was strange to me and my child, but my child found it amusing. Now, parents can always tell when their child is up to something, when they are coming up with an idea or hiding something from you. It's rather cute how our children try to hide it from you, lying through the teeth of their mouth, spilling words of false truth. My child went through this phase. For about 2,000 years in human time, I noticed that he was cooking up an idea in his head, and he was not good at hiding it. I did not ask him nor take notice, for I trusted my creation. For one day, it was supposed to rule over the gods and mankind, and it was also still the child. One day when I went to go visit my creation, he looked excited about something, like a little child waiting to tell his father something that he had done. It was kind of cute in all honesty, and I asked him why he was all happy. Because I have an idea, father. You said we can't understand humans because we aren't one, right? He said, voice moving steadily across the field of space and time. I looked at him with a smirk and replied, Yes, I did say that. Why do you? Well, I came up with an idea. He cut me off, pulling me to look at something. How can I be a good god if I can't understand humans? Well, I decided that I'm going to become one. I remember laughing at it. The thought of my creation and becoming a human was fascinating and hilarious for me. Yet I thought it would be interesting to watch. I told it that the idea was good and that it would be amusing to watch. The look on his face was something that I'll never forget. He looked so happy and proud. I wish that I would have stopped it. I wish that I would have known. But I was just a naive father. He told me not to interfere, that he wanted to do this himself. Told me to not even watch until he got back. I listened to it sadly. I did not interfere or watch it when it went off into your world. I sat up in the high halls and waited for my creations to return. I would look at realms my child was not in, and stir up some chaos for fun like old times. It wasn't more than 400 years before it returned, but it was not the same. It was a man now. He had long black hair and a beard. He looked raggedy and dirty. Blood soaked his hands and body. He fell to the ground when he returned, and gasping for air. The happiness on my face had drifted away, and had turned to fear and worry. He wasn't the same. He looked up at me. Hatred and violence were in his once two beautiful eyes. His face had cuts all over it, and his back was covered in whip marks. I still remember what he said to me. Voice no longer smooth and clear, now raspy and cold. They killed me. I tried teaching them to be peaceful and to not fight, but they killed me. They don't know peace. They can't understand it. They only know violence. No more will they. No more will they fight. They will suffer. He had a small smirk on his face. Eva filled his face and eyes. I just looked down at him, astonished at what the humans did to my creation, my beautiful child. They destroyed him, and I was filled with rage.
the wrath that I unleashed in you guys was far greater than ever before. Unleashing chaos in every realm of existence, and hundreds of thousands were destroyed. You guys barely recovered from me, but if I could have destroyed you guys, I would have. The other guys got mad at me, asking me why I had unleashed my anger on you humans. And I just told them one word. Justice. What filled me with the most rage, though, was what you guys gave my child. You gave him a name. Jesus, they called him. They gave my child a name, and he stuck with it. I didn't like that name, though. It made me feel sick to my stomach every time I heard it. A name you humans gave my creation. After he returned, he pushed himself away from me. I barely saw him, and whenever I did, it was very brief. He would occasionally poke his head out and observe you guys, no longer asking questions. He looked like a man now, instead of the beautiful body of light that he once was. I could tell that he was planning something, but I couldn't place my finger on what he was planning though. I would watch him from afar as he observed you guys. Watch the violence in his eyes grow through his soul. The anger and hatred that filled his face. This was not my child. He died when he went into the human world. His soul was turned from a bright light of joy and hope into a void of darkness that corrupted his heart. One day though, after thousands of years, he came to me with a slight smile on his face and told me that he had another idea. I was worried when he told me this for his first idea shaped him into the monster that he is today. I did not know that this one would be far worse than his last. He looked into my eyes and he said, I want to help them out, help them not fight anymore. I was looking at everything and I realized that there is one thing that is the main cause of war, and that's religion. Humans fight over what religion is right and what's wrong killing those who believe differently, and for what. Therefore, I have decided to eliminate all religions. I remember the look that I gave him. It was a mixture of worriedness and confusion. I didn't know what he meant. Maybe if I would, I would have killed him then and there. But curiosity had corrupted my mind. I asked him what he meant by it, and I'll never forget how his eyes changed. Violence poured into his eyes like a stream of water. His face had changed and morphed into a face that I commonly saw in humans. A face of war. All he said to me was one word. One word that shook me to my core. Destruction. I looked at him in astonishment, and I asked him what he meant by it. I thought that he meant for you humans, but I was wrong, so, so wrong. He explained to me that humans are very stupid, yet very intelligent. They could build massive skyscrapers and develop machines that could operate the world in only a hundred years' time. But at the same time, fight over which god is real and whatnot. He told me that the only thing that's holding you humans back was us, the gods. I told him that it's always been like that, but there is little that we could do about it because... Even if we hide ourselves, you humans would always find us. He looked at me with a bright smile on his face, something that I haven't seen ever since he had visited you guys, and he said something that made my body turn cold. 
That's why I should kill all the gods. I never raised my voice in my child, not until he spoke those words. Are you mad? You are meant to rule over the gods and humans. Bring peace through us all. Not destroy us. I screamed at him, my voice filled with nothing but rage. I put my left hand over his shoulder and lifted my finger to his face. You will not lay a finger on them, do you understand me? I screamed even louder than before. I saw his demeanor change. He gained a look of sadness. I was hoping so desperately that he was joking, but my gut had told me otherwise. My eyes locked onto his and did not leave. I wanted to make sure he knew that I would not allow it and that I was wrong. He did not listen, though. He only looked into my eyes and said, straight to my face in a cold, harsh tone, that I'll do it without you. I never knew how powerful he really was. He never had used his power for anything really. He always just observed and watched you guys. Never caused any disasters or anything. I didn't realize that he was the most powerful being that ever existed. So powerful that even the gods themselves would learn to fear him. His power gleamed off of him. It felt like a massive weight that dragged down on my body. For the first time in all of my existence, I felt fear. With only a movement of his hand, he locked me away inside a cage of light and power. I tried breaking out of it. I used all the power that I had, but there wasn't even a hint of a breaking. I screamed at him, begging him to let me out and to not carry out his plan. But he just stared at me. I felt fear. Fear of my own child, of my own creation. I wanted to run, hide from him, but I couldn't. I was trapped in a cage of light, not able to break free. I kept screaming at him begging him to let me out, but he wouldn't listen. He just turned around and started walking away. I tried using all the power that I had to break free, unleashing my wrath on the cage that he had locked me in, yet it wouldn't even leave a budge. Then, with only another swipe of his hand, he opened a portal through the realms of reality that would take him into the land of gods, of my home. He looked back at me as I was screaming, and he only said one word in a cold, harsh tone. Fall. Suddenly, I felt dizzy. My throat shut and I couldn't speak. My vision became blurry. I tumbled to my feet, legs collapsed like a massive weight was dragging me to the ground. I felt my eyes become heavy. I tried keeping them open, but the power was too great. As my vision was fading, I watched as my child stepped through the portal, giving birth to the carnage my child would create. I don't know how long I was asleep for. Thousands of years, maybe. Heck, maybe even millions. I really don't know. I don't remember dreaming during this time, either. It was like many years had passed in only an instant. In one moment, I watched my child enter the portal. And the next, I awoke to my child standing above me, telling me to rise. I looked up at him in confusion, wondering what the heck had happened. He looked different again, no longer like a child but like a fierce grown warrior. I could sense that many, many years had passed. It was like his whole stance and demeanor had changed. 
I could sense the power flowing out of his body like a river, so powerful and fierce, so terrifying. He looked at me and I looked at him and I began to speak. His voice was powerful. Hearing it sent a shiver through my whole body. It was so cold yet so loud. Look upon me, father. My child said, looking down upon me like I was just a mere human. My eyes didn't leave him, and I could tell that his plan was carried out. I sensed the destruction and carnage that he had caused. I suddenly felt a feeling of great sorrow. A feeling of sorrow for the gods that my child slew. I knew he did it, for he would not be standing before me if he would have failed. What have you done, my child? were the only words that I could muster up. The only words my terrified vocal cords would allow me to say. He looked upon me, eyes filled with rage and hatred, and he told me something that I will never forget. I have carried out the greatest slaying of the gods. You have been asleep for a long time, and while you were asleep, I have gone to each realm that the gods resided in and slew every single one that claimed to be a god. I have destroyed the great cities and kingdoms that the gods have resided in, burned the great halls that the gods had created for humans. Not only that, I destroyed every single realm of the humans, leaving only one. This realm will be the one that I rule, the one that will have peace, for the gods are dead. It is now only me and you. Now stand up and face your death, father. Be grateful you are dying at my hand. Be grateful that your death will bring upon peace through the human world. My child's eyes did not leave mine. His eyes were filled with great power. For what I once held power over now held power over me. I did what he commanded and stood up. My heart felt like I was shattered into a million pieces. My brothers and sisters and friends and family were destroyed by what I had created. Something I had created out of boredom. I looked at my child, whose face now grew a slight smile. There I stood before him, whose soul was once so innocent and pure, now destroyed by the cruelty of your world, destroyed by the longing of power. I felt his hand come under my shoulder. It was very light and warm, and I still felt the love that he once had for me. I looked into his eyes. I was desperately trying to find the child that I once knew, but I could not find him. He was murdered long ago. He died on that cross. I will make your death quick, father. That'll be my gift to you. I will make sure your name is remembered in my world. I'll make sure of it. My child said, hand still on my shoulder as his other hand pulled out a sword from his back. I was going to accept my fate. I was filled with such agony that I didn't even want to be alive. But I had an idea. It was like my brain went into full survival mode, and I did what I did best. Wait, you're forgetting something, child. I said out of pure desperation. My child stopped moving, and he gave me an eye of confusion. Before he could speak, I continued. How can you keep peace in your world if there is no threat of what will happen if you break that peace? The only way to have peace is to have fear of breaking it. I don't know why I said this, but it was like my brain took over, spewing words of nonsense out of my mouth in hopes that it would keep me alive. 
I could tell my child was listening, so I continued. What if I am the opposite of you in this new world? What if those who preserve peace get rewarded after death, and those who do not suffer? What if I am the evil they fear and you're the good that they love? I said, extending my hands out as I finish. He stared at me, eyes still filled with anger and savageness. I thought for sure that I was going to die, thought that he wouldn't even listen to me. But he started laughing. He looked at me and patted my right shoulder as he laughed. Such an evil and sinister laugh. Father, you still managed to surprise me. My child spoke through his laughter. I thought for sure that I was dead, that he wouldn't listen to me. I thought for sure that he was still going to kill me. But then he said, You're a genius. How could I not have thought of that? I can create two afterlives, one for the evil and one for the good, and you can rule the one for the evil. For only a glimmer of a second, I saw my child return to me, and I saw my child in his eyes, the one who was so innocent and pure, so loving. My child embraced me with a hug as he laughed, filled with so much love and passion. I couldn't help but cry. Tears left my eyes slowly. I couldn't tell if it was a relief or because it had been so long since I had hugged my child. It wasn't long after this that God created the new and only realm of existence, which is the one that we are in now. With this new realm, heaven and hell were soon created afterward, along with the first two humans. This was the beginning of the new world, the world that was meant to have peace and prosperity, the world without the gods. I tried making hell not such a bad place for you humans. If you do manage to make it, you won't suffer for all of eternity. It's rather boring, actually. So boring that I try to mess with you humans a little bit. While I do cause natural disasters and pandemics and stuff, my greatest chaos was what I gave you humans. I gave you things like lust, greed, envy, pride, wrath... I gave you humans depression, illness, anger, and hatred. I tried to keep balance in this realm because it can't just be a place of peace and happiness. I also try to remind you guys of us, of my old friends and family. You may be wondering why there has been more than one god in history and that's because of me. I don't want my friends and family to be forgotten. So I remind you guys of us, no matter the punishment that I faced from god. Every time I did, though, God would make sure the empire that was reminded of us would fall. The Greeks and Romans were both meant to be advanced civilizations that would have still been around, but I intervened and reminded them of who they truly were. My child did not allow this, making them fall eventually through war and battle. The last time I did this was with the Vikings. I reminded them all of not just my friends, but my family. I reminded them of my brothers and sisters showing them stories of Odin and the old gods like Thor and even me. I made them hate the Christians, made them despise me. Yet my child soon even put an end to that. You can still find the gods though, they are still around in the modern world, you just have to look. I make sure to bless those who worship the old gods, make sure to give them happy lives and give them what they desire within reason. I am not evil even though my child gave me the name Lucifer. It is not my true name. I will not bring death and destruction to this world, and I will not give you misfortune. 
These days, I just sit in my hell with guilt for what I've done. I remember the old days when the gods ruled the earth and heavens. I remember the stories of us, the great battles we had, and also remember how much you humans loved us. No one loves me now, and God made sure of it. I am the prince of darkness, the bringer of lies and chaos. The bringer of death and destruction when in reality, I'm just a scared little being who is all alone. I hate myself every day for what I've created, wishing and longing to go back and correct my mistakes, but I cannot. Recently, though, I have been traveling your world, admiring the beauty that God has created. I didn't expect humans to find this place. I thought it was too deep and hidden for anyone to discover, yet here we are. When I saw you, though, you seemed different. I could sense the goodness off of you. It's why I asked to talk to you. Tell you the story of how the gods perished. Tell you of my greatest mistake. You have a good soul, and I trust that you'll handle this information that I'm giving you well. I'm not the one you should fear, though, for my child has been creating something of his own. You could probably find it if you looked up in the sky. It's a star that shines brighter than all the others. I fear he is creating someone to take my place. And if that is the case, then we are all doomed. My child will be creating a true devil. A devil who will be the one out of nightmares. I only hope this is not the case. But my instincts are telling me otherwise. When the star hatches, it'll be like it just disappeared from the night sky. And if you're looking at it, you will see it happen. I hope that this will never happen. But that star has been in the sky for millions of years in the realm of creation. So I fear that it will hatch any day now. This new devil that my child is creating will be the one that you know and fear. And it's only a matter of time before he's born. In all honesty, I am terrified of what might be created. I also fear that my child will want to restart with his creation. Destroy this world and begin a new one. I hope that this is only a fear and not destiny, for I don't know how I will protect you guys. I believe deep down that some other gods survived. I believe that they are walking among you, alone and afraid like I am. I can promise you this. If what I fear is true, then I swear in everything that I will fight. I will not hide and cower away. If there are other gods, then I'm sure they'll fight too. But don't gain too much hope, for my creation is far more powerful than any being. I've thought about destroying you all, laying my wrath upon the world like a hot blanket of flame and disaster. I even thought about doing this then when I first saw you. But like I said, I sensed something different. I sensed what I once saw in my child. Kindness and purity that flowed through him like a warm river. These days, I'm rather lonely. I wish so badly that I could correct my mistakes, but that's not how the world works, even for a god. For a while, I may be the powerful prince of darkness, but I'm really just alone and afraid. I turned off the recorder at that point, and I looked at the tall, strong man. His bright red and long hair covered the right side of his face, face smooth as if he was plastic. Even though he was sitting, I could tell that he was tall, for he was towering over me in his chair and he had a soft voice that echoed slightly through the cave. I told him that was all that I needed, and that I would return again when my boss allows me to. He nodded in understanding, 
and he had a great sorrow in his eyes as he stood up and began to walk back deeper into the cave. I remember when he came to me. I was doing an expedition with my crew at a cave in Norway. I could immediately sense his power. I could sense that he was no ordinary man. He asked if we could talk and for some reason we all agreed to. We were deep in the cave, so deep that we needed equipment to help us breathe. Yet this man had no equipment. He breathed just fine. Which is why I was so fascinated by this man, and probably why I wanted to talk to him. I transferred the audio recording over and made my way out of the cave. I don't know if anyone will believe this man. I don't know if we will be able to return and talk to him again. But I am praying that we do. I'm a Christian, so hearing all of this is like a shatter to my beliefs. At first I thought he was the devil, lying through his tongue to steer me off the path of holiness. But my gut told me otherwise. There was something fascinating though. There were drawings all over the cave walls. It had drawings of what I assumed to be gods. Had names of people or maybe even gods all over the cave walls and languages that I had never even seen before. There were what looked to be weapons around the cave too. Weapons such as a hammer, a sphere, or even a trident. Our crew took many pictures of these drawings and objects, making sure that we had all the evidence that we could manage. There was one name that stood out to me though. The name had a bright green circle around it and it was above all the other names. It was written in what looked to be blood, and I couldn't help but stare at it. It was in Old Norse, one of the only languages that I could read on this wall since I came from a Scandinavian family. I believe this to be the name of the man, no god that I talked to, the name of the god who created the Christian god, a name almost forgotten in time. I learned about this god growing up. I never thought that I would talk to him though. I didn't even believe that he existed until now. It was the god of deception and trickery, the true prince of darkness. It was Loki. There was something else strange though. It's something that happened in the night sky when I was driving home. On my way home in my old beat down truck, I decided to look up into the sky and ponder at the stars. And while looking, something caught my eye. I saw a star that shined brighter than the rest, too bright even. It stood out amongst the stars, and while I was admiring this beauty, I watched the star grow and shine brighter in the sky, and then suddenly, it vanished. Thank you all for sticking around for this week's lineup. I enjoyed reading them and I hope you enjoyed listening. The holidays are fast approaching and I hope each and every one of you have an amazing holiday season. Another reminder that you can take advantage of this week's sponsor, Simply Safe, and their holiday offer. Take advantage of Simply Safe's holiday deals and get 40% off your new home security system by visiting simplysafe.com slash mrcreeps. Stay safe and warm wherever you may be in the world. And as always, stay creepy.